Hi, I'm Andrew. Welcome to the Review of Two Dice Geoengineering podcast. We're here today to talk about a technique and not paper, and that's the mere reflection technique. And I'm here joined today by Ye, and he's going to be talking me through this. Welcome to the show, Ye. Thank you for inviting me. Excited to talk to your audience about this. Great. Um, so do you want to start off by giving us a bit of an intro as to what the mere technique is all about? Uh, yes. So it's a technique that we developed by first dissecting the climate problem and looking at first the scale of the, uh, the challenge and also what kind of materials that we have uh, readily accessible on this planet and uh, also incorporating many as many co-benefits as possible into the design. And something that's really important is that we develop technology that can be deployed on small scale uh, by uh, individual communities, individual households and uh, uh, permaculture enthusiasts and that eventually um, uh, provide global benefit uh, through uh, grassroots uh, scaling from the bottom up. Uh, so essentially, the technique consists of uh, strategic uses of different glass mirror designs. So in a, a first uh, implementation, we're envision envisioning uh, glass mirror devices uh, interspersed as arrays into agricultural fields that are currently suffering from extreme heat and drought. And uh, we're currently uh, taking data in the field to uh, test the degree of uh, heal, uh, cooling of the soil and moisture retention that can be achieved. And at so the same time- What does one of these devices look like? You say it's glass, but does it look like a carport? Um, does it you know, look like a sheet of paper lying on the ground? What, you know, what, talk, talk to me about what it actually is. Um, okay. so. The uh, devices or prototypes currently being uh, undergoing field testing are roughly uh, two by two feet squares uh, and the thickness of the, these devices are about four millimeters. So a quarter of about, that. About, about half a square meter. And, and what color are they? Are they white or are they silver or what? How do, how do they actually look? Yeah, they are made to be uh, mirrors, essentially giving shiny specular reflection so uh, the specular reflection turns out to be very important. If what we is specular reflection? Oh, specular reflection is um, uh, when light photons bounce off of a surface at an angle, uh, which um, has the same angle of departure as entry with respect to normal to that surface. So, so you're it, talking about something which is like a bathroom mirror, basically. It's very similar to a bathroom mirror in terms of its appearance. In the appearance, yes. It's basically your everyday bathroom mirror uh, with some um, engineering considerations to make them last in the field over decadal to hopefully century timescales. Okay, so, so my understanding is that the, the basic construction of a bathroom mirror is that you've got a glass front and that's normally tempered glass to stop it shattering um, if someone bumps into it, right? Um, yes. And then you've got a silver reflective layer that's applied to the Back, and I think that actually is elemental silver that they use for that. And then you've got a protective backing that protects the silver from oxidization, right? Um, so uh, they typically have a, a three or a four layer structure depending on the complexity of the backing. Um, is that broadly speaking, you know, what, what, what you have in mind for your, your, your product or, or is there some detail of that that I'm missing? Um, so the general structure is correct that uh, they are consisted of multi layers of material. What's really important for these uh, uh, devices deployed in the field is that both the top and the bottom side, the first layer from uh, both sides need to be glass, such that uh, the whole device is uh, protected against environmental corrosion. Then your functional devices, uh, device layers then can be sandwiched in between the top and bottom glass protection layers. Okay, so it's like two bathroom mirrors stuck together back to back then, roughly. Uh, roughly, yes. Okay, now, um, the, uh, is there seven years bad luck every time you break one of these things? Because it sounds like that's gonna bring a lot of bad luck. So if you're making a four mil thick, that's thinner than your average bathroom mirror, and then you're going to be putting them out in the field where they get hit by hailstones and um, bits of dust that have been picked up by the wind and passing animals and blown over and all kinds of different things that, you know, accidents and disasters that might befall stuff in the field. You know, to what extent is this, um, uh, is this going to be uh, a strategy that's, that, that, that are these devices robust enough 
to, for the job that they're being asked to do? Uh, that's uh, an excellent question and basically uh, involves uh, you know concepts that's at the heart of confronting this climate crisis. Essentially, you want your uh, solution to be durable enough that uh, over the course of time, they are affordable and cheap when averaged by yeah. the longevity. So, um, And when you talk about longevity, just give me a ballpark figure of this. The idea of taking a bathroom mirror, which is, you know, to all intents and purposes, fairly similar to an ordinary bathroom mirror, and then putting it out in, in, in the field or a field somewhere. Um, how are you long are you expecting this to last? You know, are you going to get a year out of it, 20 years, what? Uh, so the mirrors that uh, we are field testing should have uh, uh, several decades of lifetime. And uh, similar solar mirrors in energy capture uh, uh, applications have demonstrated field lifetimes of at least 30 years without measurable degradation. Okay, so, so you're, you're, you're talking about um, field mirrors that are you know, comparable to the ones that you use in um, uh, concentrated solar power arrays, right? Uh, pretty much. Uh, a little bit less thick than those ones because those have to be thicker because they are uh, larger laterally. So they're yeah. also because they have to precisely focus the light, right? Um, yes. So there's so technically uh, the specs do not need to be as uh, rigorous for these uh, smaller agricultural okay. reflectors. Okay. So now the, the, I've got a, some fundamental questions about <laughs> the efficacy and appropriateness of the technique, but I just want to talk about the engineering first because I'm kind of surprised. Um, at the technique that you're proposing, because you're, you're saying that this is going to be four millimeters thick. Now, I don't have the kind of area of the earth in my head, but to reflect something like 1% of sunlight, which is roughly where we've got to, we've got to cover you know, roughly 1% of the earth's surface in wholly reflective materials um, mm -hmm. uh, to, to try and eliminate that. Uh, um, and that has to be full spectrum as well. So I don't know. The, I mean, a bathroom mirror is normally back silvered as opposed to front silvered, and a, an astronomical mirror would be, would be front silvered so that the reflective surface is on the uh, is on the, the, the exposed surface. I, I'm sure you wouldn't want that if it's going to be rained on for 25 years or whatever. So um, the, I'm imagining that you're going to um, have a back silvered product, and therefore there's going to be some absorption of light inside the glass. Is that the case or not? Uh, that's uh, that is uh, exactly the case. So, and actually, we're not uh, envisioning using silver, but rather using aluminum. So, in these large-scale engineering projects, sometimes it's worthwhile sacrificing, say, ten percent of the reflectivity for something that's uh, orders of magnitude more abundant and cheaper. So, yeah, I mean, silver is a sem well, it's a precious metal, isn't it? So, although I mean, there is a lot of silver available, and it's not hugely expensive. Like a silver ring costs in the order of a few dollars, whereas a gold gold ring would cost a few hundred dollars right um, yes. so uh you know silver is a readily available engineering material but once you try start trying to cover half the world in it then you're going to end up coming up against fundamental limits of the supply of the material that exists on the planet right um, that is very correct that's why we uh we're going for aluminum so it turns out that uh, so each person used a one single can of coke worth of aluminum to make mirrors they essentially cancel out their emissions entirely so uh, one year worth of recycled aluminum from Norway is sufficient to cool the climate back to pre-industrial times. So we certainly do not have any problem to worry about in terms of uh, primary material availability. Let me, let me just run you through the maths here, right? So if you're reflecting 100% of incoming sunlight, then you've got a perfectly white surface. And I think there are some sort of finely powdered bismuth compounds that are, um, you know, 97% albedo, you know, they're, they're functionally perfectly white, right? Now, you're, and, and the, I think the Earth itself is about 17% albedo. So, you know, about 17% of the light of the incident light will get bounced back directly into space. I don't know whether that's full spectrum or just visible light only, but let, let's assume, you know, to a rough rule of thumb that it's reflecting about, you know, one part in five, one part in six. So you've got a take that into account and then your mirrors have got to reflect um you know more than that to make it worthwhile so your, your mirror is definitely going to be more than a kind of 17 percent bright but on a full spectrum basis how bright is your mirror i mean is it is it really going to be um uh you know 80 90 white or is it going to be more like you know 40 50 white once it's got bird poo and dust and all of the other environmental degradation it's going to have on top of it 
so they, uh, the reflectivity of thin film aluminum mirrors are around 85 to 90%. And that's uh, roughly 50% you know, or more increase in albedo compared to the average global uh, uh, you know, Earth, which is like around 0.3. So we're increasing albedo from 0.3 to roughly 0.8. And uh, uh, the devices that we tested in the field, they actually self-clean. It turns out that to have uh, the optimal reflectivity, you want these mirrors to be angled at certain angle, uh, corresponding roughly- yeah, you want to be bouncing the sun back to the sun, right? Yes, uh, more or less. And also have a projected larger area exposed to direct- yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not that you want the light to go back to the sun specifically because it doesn't make any difference, but- the, um, what you want is to have the, a situation where the um, uh, the mirror is you know you know you're not kind of glancing at, at the mirror because it, correct, the light correct. isn't yes. square on then you're just wasting material right now that, that is correct for most regions of the earth except for perhaps the pole where you have to uh, balance two effects one is the uh, uh, projected exposure surface to the to the sun the other is uh, the effective overall half length out of the atmosphere, because it would be counterintuitive, uh, counterproductive to really uh, reflect the light being such that the majority of the light is traveling horizontally, such that they have such a long path length before they can make out into space. Yeah, you want to bounce that light up into the sky and get rid of it in case it hits some aerosols and gets absorbed, right? Yeah, yeah, or scattered. Yes, that, that's correct. So there's a, a, a somewhat of balancing act, but. Um, and, and where do, you, where do you imagine putting these mirrors? Because you've talked about terrestrial applications, but to my, to my mind, the most efficient way to use them would be to have them um, on ships so that they were um, uh, mo moving to the areas of the Earth where there was the most direct. So, you know, you want them to move between the tropics, basically, um, so that, the, uh, uh, that they catch the... the, the, the the, the, the mirrors catch the largest possible um, amount of light, uh, which is where the, the per square meter that comes down in the tropics, right? Uh, so you're correct uh, if we're just thinking about the first order effect of uh, obtaining the largest fractional light rejection at uh, the surface. But there's other considerations if we're thinking holistically about how these uh, technologies impact the human system. So it is correct that uh, if you deploy them on ocean with a 0.05 albedo, you get roughly a 10, 20% more increase per uh, square foot or square meter deployed. But however- Yeah, yeah no, I mean, the, the, uh, you make an important point now, just to recap, if people miss that, what you, you, because the ocean is quite dark, then putting the mirrors on the ocean means that you have a greater relative increase in albedo, right? Um, right. But, but that wasn't what I was meaning. The, re the reason I was suggesting having them on ships and moving them around was because you've got the opportunity to move them to where the sun is shining down most brightly. So if you, if you mount them, for example, um, in the tropics, um, which is a logical place to put them because you have so much um, incident light, but as the, um, as the seasons change, um, the tropics will go through of their winter or summer and although that you know they're still pretty warm places throughout the year they're not as warm in the winter as they are in the summer typically or they don't get as much incident light in the summer typically um so but but are you envisaging putting these mirrors in in fixed terrestrial geographical locations or putting them on boats or what how, how is it going to work so there, there's many many layers uh, to your uh, question so uh, first of all, uh, we don't think you know uh, implementing in marine environments is the most uh, urgent or most uh, fruitful application because, for one, we would be decreasing the source of water or fresh water by evaporation uh, for land systems if we are decreasing directly. But that that, that only matters. Well, yeah, but no, well, I mean, rather I, land, let, me uh, let me just challenge challenge that point because that can, in theory, happen, but that would only happen in areas where the ocean wasn't already humid and certainly in the central oceans where um, water is, uh, the, the wind has passed over um, perhaps thousands of kilometers of ocean, it's likely to be fairly well saturated. And even that if this idea is going to be implemented, you're only going to be covering up somewhere of the order of 2% of the oceans anyway, right? So you're not looking at making a material um, change to the surface and any reduction in evaporation that you manage to achieve would just reduce the vapor pressure of water 
and therefore make it likely that water molecules from adjacent areas will evaporate into the relatively dry air, um, which um, has been created by these mirrors. So I, I'm not sure I buy your arguments about the... Um, okay, uh, that's only just one uh, potential concern, but land implementation primarily will certainly have an impact on keeping water on land once they do arrive. So that's a pretty uh, a clear expectation based on first principles. The other point that uh, uh, your question touches... So I didn't catch that. Can you just repeat that point? I'm not sure I grasp what you were saying there. Are you saying that one of the benefits is that they're directly controlling the temperature of the land? That's one of the things. Uh, you're correct, seeing. yes. Uh, uh, okay. Lowering the temperature of the land to enable uh, crop species to really operate at their optimal temperature and also keep moisture uh, around longer on land because then they wouldn't have to uh, uh, transpire as heavily uh, to get rid of uh, the latent heat. So it's okay. a way to keep water in place, basically keep it longer once it's available. So it, it's for drought alleviation immediately uh, on land. So that's the other point. The other uh, uh, thing you touched on is uh, dragging these arrays using ships. So we think really it's important to have these be passive devices because passive devices, once fabricated, you uh, have no more energy input. So if we really analyze the, uh, the energy of global heating we're fighting against, it's uh, a power, a thermal power, which is 50 times more than we have in, uh, we have in terms of fossil fuel power. So if, we, if the technique involves continuous expenditure of energy, we make the efficiency much lower. So we have to- oh, I, get, I get it, if you're gonna pull them around with diesel tugs, but I mean, you can put sails on them or all kinds of different things. But there, I mean, there are some other engineering con concerns that I'd like to go through, uh, and then some geophysical ones as well. So um, the, the, the obvious thing that, that strikes me is that you're look, using a very uh, significant amount of material to make these mirrors, which are gonna be of the order of millimeters thick. So, you're, you're looking at um, a, a comparison is, is releasing millions of tons of um, sulfur compounds that then form aer aerosols. And those, um, those aerosols are thousands um, uh, upon thousands of times thinner um, than your mirror. Now, we can make surfaces that are a lot thinner than mirrors. So you can make um, uh, like plastic wraps, like crisp packets, um, you can make uh, paints um, like the white lines that you'll find on uh, up the highway. Um, and so, you know, we've got a lot of opportunity to, to make different materials. So you could paint um, rocks in deserts, you could paint buildings, you could paint asphalt, you can put dyes into concrete to change the albedo of the built environment. Um, there are a lot of things that we could do with engineered surfaces alone, you know, forgetting the idea of doing um, changing crops and using cover crops and things like that, which have been considered, but just on engineered surfaces alone, why would you use big chunky thick bits of glass when you can use thin plastic films or paints or whatever to achieve fundamentally the same effect? I'm not clear on why you need a big solid thing to do this job. That's a very good question. And the, essentially the fundamental issue, which makes uh, glass mirrors absolutely important for this application. Uh, paint, white paint, for example, are made with uh, different components, including a lot of uh, fossil fuel-based products and the binders. And these materials oxidize, they eventually degrade on the timescale of a few years. So essentially, even though the thickness when you apply may be just, uh, say, 200 microns, like 0.2 millimeters thick, but over the time scale of, uh, say, 50 years, you have to apply it 10 times, then the overall thickness of the material you put down would be basically the same as the glass. Which yeah, I mean, I, I, I get the, I get the principle. Yeah, I get and the also the, the fossil fuel components, that's another source of CO2 emission. And if one does the uh, actual calculation of how much volume of petroleum is needed to make the paint to cover the area, it's an absolutely prohibitive amount of petroleum required. So that's essentially not feasible at all. It's well, not available. Well, yeah, but let, let me challenge that because, I mean, you're, 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 I'm not sure you're comparing like with like. I mean, glass is a very high environmental impact material. And one of the reasons- That's not, that's not correct. Glass is actually very low environmental impact. It's roughly 1 50th the emission compared to just metals like aluminum or steel in terms of uh, per um, uh, volume basis. Yeah, but what I'm meaning is that the, you, you, you're having to use a larger volume of glass, right? And that, is, that is correct, yes. 
but it's yeah. durable and 100% recyclable. And it's yeah. really low energy intensity in terms of uh, structural material is concerned. Yeah, but you can use things like um, in ICE 911, for example, are making little glass stairs. Now, little glass stairs that are dusted on desert just look like white dust, right? And they're thousand, probably about a thousand times thinner than, than your mirrors. But they're not. And no, you, you do have to have a, a, a tens to hundreds of microns of collapse of thickness to achieve comparable reflectivity. So it's essentially within the same order of magnitude. But those have to be replenished every year, whereas glass can last for decades to centuries with good engineering. So it's not even within order of magnitude in terms of uh, relative efficiency. Okay, so your, your, your key argument is that the durability um, of your um, uh, structures are the winning point. That when you take into account the manufacturing, um, the embodied energy of manufacturer, although glass has got a significant, um, you know, in terms of on a global basis, manufacturer, glass manufacturers are significant consumer of energy um, per gram of material it's quite modest and the um, and the result is that you've got a material which is very durable and therefore it might outperform much thinner materials that are left out in the field is that is that correct uh, yes even just projected on a per area basis the glass mirrors is comparable if not better than the other uh, materials including pink and these glass spheres and on top of that, if we take into account the temporal stability, it really uh, makes it stand out by orders of magnitude in effectiveness. Okay. Um, so when I, I want to sort of talk further about the idea, you know, how you're making these, you're, you're imagining a, a panel which is square and two foot on each side, so roughly half a square meter. I mean, is it not possible to make these panels you know, similar to the size of coins and then just throw them out of aircraft in, you know, millions at a time is that not a more efficient way of doing it other than mounting individual things that look like um you know rabbit hutches on um, uh on on stands that are physically constructed it's a more manual process just making these in a machine and then dropping them out the back of an aircraft right uh, so the vision for mirror includes uh several steps one is to control the climate in the short term within 20 to 30 years and also use these devices in different configurations to uh, increase the capture efficiency of solar energy and the solar photovoltaics. And eventually we envision that we will have no more need to really implement, continue implementation beyond a certain point. And we should be able to retire them and recycle the material. So if it's a millions of little coins, it will be a really uh, horrible fight against entropy to try to find them all again, right? So we're, um, hoping that uh, once we have really balanced out the energy and started the, the, uh, the journey back to uh, pre-industrial uh, CO2 and greenhouse gas concentrations, we'll be able to uh, retire these mirrors and use them for something else. And when they're managed well in infrastructures that can be uh, taken down in a coordinated fashion, that's a, a very uh, good plus. Yeah, you could use, you could use like a foam, a glass foam to make a retro reflector rather than having Okay, that's, a, that's actually a, a key point about the uh, physics of uh, radiative transfer in the atmosphere. So if, say, the, the, uh, the, the reflection was by scattering, where the photons are scrambled in every which direction away from the surface, then uh, the probability for these photons to immediately escape the atmosphere would decrease drastically, where we don't have a firm number to give you yet because we're still doing the calculations. But uh, a mirror with the uh, really focus the direction of light escaping, especially during around noontime when direct normal irradiance is strongest. So it's a natural way to really boost the global cooling efficiency of these devices. It is true that a white surface at local scale would give a comparable uh, efficiency for local cooling, but that's really not the case if uh, we consider the uh, surrounding atmosphere and your neighbor's house and the, the tree next door to be also part of the system. So if the goal is to have both local and global benefits, the specular reflection or specular reflectivity of mirrors is actually a, a necessity. Okay, so, um, but a retro reflective material will return most of the light back to where it came from. That's why road signs and high-vi jackets glint when you catch them in your headlights. Um, and, they, and these are much thinner 
um, than uh, a bathroom mirror. So can you not make a surface which is you know, potentially made of glass with the durability benefits that you describe, but also um, is made from um, a retro-reflective material, so it doesn't have to have the metal component and perhaps could be somewhat thinner um, and, and, and would certainly only need to be um, used um, uh, without being oriented accurately because you'll have a situation where the um, uh, wherever, whatever orientation is, the, the material is in, it's going to send the light back uh, to, to the source because that's how retro-reflective materials work. Yeah, I agree that overall, assuming more or less a symmetric uh, atmosphere, retroreflectors and the mirror specular reflection give comparable uh, global and the local cooling impact. So uh, the mirrors actually are not thick if we're considering the reflective portion of the thin film. So as long as you have above uh, around 100 nanometers of aluminum, you basically achieve uh, the full potential for aluminum mirrors. And the 100 nanometer is uh, just a few thousand atoms thick, and that's uh, much thinner, if not uh, drastically thinner, than uh, retro reflector material uh, coatings. Yeah, the the metal part is definitely very thin, but the glass substrate. I mean, you could potentially reduce the amount of glass uh, and give it a higher strength to weight ratio by filling it with little bubbles that act as retro reflectors. And I just wondered if there was a particular reason why. Um, I see. A bubble, okay. A bubbly glass, or you know, it doesn't even need to be bubbles of air. You might put bubbles of, you know, I don't know, alcohol or whatever in the glass. I don't yes, know what yes. material would work, but you can yeah, make yeah. a retro reflector using um, like a bubbly type approach, right? And I just wonder yeah. why that doesn't work. I think that that's an excellent question. I think that would be a very exciting uh, engineering field to to exploit. So we just settled on something that uh, basically uh, float, float mirrors, float glass, uh, is an established technology that we know can be crank, uh, cranked out in large quantities quickly. But of course, if you had a new technology or a method to incorporate these uh, nano uh, air or uh, bubbles into the flat mirror, or not, maybe not even flat, then of course that could uh, potentially be scalable as well and be useful. Yes, yeah, certainly. Yeah, I mean, we can certainly make micro uh, glass microspheres. These are used for a variety of applications. They're used as a filler in paints. They're used to provide, um, you know, by the ICE 911 project uses them. And they also have niche uses as uh, oxidizers because they can carry uh, um, oxygen into the center of explosives in a way that uh, um, many other materials can't. So the, they're widely made and available in bulk and they're inexpensive. And if we could find a way to incorporate those glass microspheres into a glass substrate, then um, uh, you'd have to have glass with two different melting points to mix them together. Then that might give you some pretty interesting performance improvements uh, in terms of weight and cost and potentially optical performance as well. But anyway, I mean, that's a, as you describe it, that's a, um, a potential angle for further research. So not something that we can necessarily go into in detail here. But um, yes, one of the other obvious one of the other obvious comparisons um, which I'd like to draw is that um, uh, between this and solar panels and solar panels are not dissimilar from glass mirrors. Um, and so why couldn't we you know, put the same amount of engineering effort and investment into making solar panels and, and then we'd have uh, lots of electricity available that we could use for decarbonization or for carbon dioxide removal? What, what, what would be wrong with that approach? Uh, so basically, energy generation, while it's the original cause of the climate problem, uh, is now not sufficient to address the climate problem which has taken on a life of, of its own. So even if we had 100% or 1000% renewable energy available, we still need to address the climate and keep the... Uh, no, I, I get it. And if, we had, if we'd already decarbonized, what, what I'm understanding by what you're saying is that you would still need this technique and uh, because we'd have elevated temperatures. But what I'm saying is in a world where we haven't yet decarbonized and you can only make a finite amount of stuff, then fundamentally it comes down to some kind of trade-off between solar panels and your mirrors. Now, my suggestion is that it may be a better use of engineering effort to make lots of solar panels um, to accelerate decarbonization rather than to improve mirrors. 
uh, or improve uh, to increase albedo by making lots of mirrors. So, uh, you know, have you done any kind of analysis of that trade-off or not? Uh, uh, certainly. So, as a matter of fact, 99.999% of the funding for these research is actually already going into renewable energy development. There's essentially no funding for looking at the problem from the other direction. Yeah, but I'm not, I'm not talking about R&D costs. I'm talking about scaling costs, right? So these mirrors that you're making, they're not free, are they? I imagine each mirror is going to cost, you know, even at scale, it's probably going to cost in the order of a, what, a dollar, something like that. It's uh, on the order of a dollar per square meter, which uh, offsets roughly 0.1 ton of CO2. So it comes down to a price range within factor of two of $10 US dollars per ton of CO2 offset. Yeah, but you've got to transport them and install them and maintain them as well, right? So, so those are minor compared to the fabrication cost. Uh, and we have done- a, a, Most of the money is the capital cost. Is that what you're saying? Uh, so uh, that cost of $10 per ton includes transportation, storage, and maintenance. Okay. So, um, but, but a solar panel, what does a solar panel roughly cost per square meter? I mean, I know they're falling all the time, but- it's on the, order of, uh, on the order of uh, uh, tens to $100 per square meter. But that's really addressing a different problem, right? Uh, we will not solve the climate by just uh, becoming 100% renewable. So we really need this, uh, this cooling method. And uh, Yeah, but I mean, you, with excess electricity, you could use it to power direct air capture instead. And you're, you're proposing this albedo. Uh, direct capture will not work, will never work not only because of energy limitation, but also because the material requirements to run these processes. Well, I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm, gonna leave, I'm gonna leave the direct air capture guys to speak for themselves, but. Yeah, yeah, sure. But uh, literature published in the last two, three- and 10 times the price, price you can have a solar panel. And I'd be interested to know how much energy um, or how much carbon dioxide a one meter squared solar panel saves in its lifetime. My guess is that the trade-off would, um, at least until we've decarbonized fully, probably favor solar panels, but that may be a conversation for another day. Um, now, I want to turn to um, the geophysical aspects of this, um, if I may. The, um, there are several comparable studies that have been done. Um, and I, I don't have the um, uh, I don't have the actual uh, names of the research papers associated because we don't really do preparation on review or two. Uh, it's a bit too professional for us. So, um, but but people have looked at cover crops instead of bare soil. They've looked at um, changing the albedo of um, food crops by uh, uh, you know whitening their leaves by genetic engineering or breeding or some other methods, right? Um, mm -hmm. You've got the ICE 911 idea analyzed in some way or another. Some of them had practical experiments like ICE 911 and glacier wrapping, and others have um, been, uh, you know, they're more the kind of twinkling a model as I, right? So, um, what, um, you know, how, how, does, how does this compare to these techniques? And specifically, if I could ask you to, to give consideration to the um, potential for distortion of the climate system, because one of the problems that was noted from the idea of um, covering deserts in reflective sheets was that it had quite dramatic by concentrating your cooling in specific areas uh, you end up in a situation where you have uh, the capacity to change climate dynamics potentially quite radically because the heat you, you're making you're creating cold spots on the earth basically by cooling um, parts of it quite dramatically so these cold spots, the, the heat will want to mix into these cold areas, you know, by, you know, as you mentioned, increasing entropy earlier, seems appropriate to frame it in those terms. Um, but the end result is that you end up with this dynamic effect of the climate system uh, where weather patterns and you know, whole fundamental atmospheric flows might change. So how does your technique um, if, affect um, the, um, the process that your uh, the, the climate processes that surround the devices that you're laying out. Uh, excellent question. So, uh, indeed, uh, techniques such as uh, um, cloud uh, marine cloud brining, for example, because they are localized to certain favorable regions, can have uh, these uh, global dy dynamic uh, impacts. 
So if mirrors were interspersed in crop fields all over the world, more or less uniformly to first order, the, uh, the cooling would be more or less um, uniform. But of course, there would be certain uh, concentration in certain regions over others. Uh, well, let, let, me, let me just ch challenge that. I mean, I think that there's an obvious issue that you haven't spoken to here. So the global croplands are about 30% of the terrestrial surface of the earth, I think, right? Mm -hmm. um, the pasture lands and croplands together, right? So all, all um, and I think that might include agroforestry as well. So basically all, all, all areas that are in some kind of um, production process mm -hmm. um, are about 30% of the terrestrial area. So you're looking at about 10% of the world's surface area. So you'd mm -hmm. have to cover about 10% of what's currently agricultural land in mirrors to have yes. the effect that you're asking for. Now, that's a lot in a world where we've got rising population still and rising, even if the population is not rising, then affluence means that people want to eat more, um, uh, that, you know, higher protein, more expensive foods that mm -hmm. require land to grow. So how compatible is this with a, a world where we have these uh, wider pressures on the agricultural system? I'm very uh, glad uh, that you bring, brought up this very important point. So uh, the total uh, you know, global total factor productivity, uh, basically how much energy uh, human power you have to put in per yield, per unit of yield in agricultural production, has been decreasing over the past 20, 30 years by up to uh, 21% uh, globally. And in regions that are um, more tropical and the heat and drought stricken, it's down to you know, 60% of the original values. So if we can locally uh, lower the temperatures back to the average conditions uh, before you know, these heat waves uh, have been uh, problematic, we have the potential to actually boost uh, total factor productivity back to uh, where they were. So essentially, counterintuitively, by blocking out some light, reducing the temperature, it's possible to uh, drastically increase uh, local production. So these are experiments uh, that uh, we are in the process of designing and conducting. But based on review of uh, uh, physiological papers uh, on plant physiology uh, and photon and light response, the hypothesis is that there would instead be an increase in per area productivity if we covered uh, parts of the land. So what you're, what you're saying is that by reducing heat stress, we can bring either more land into production or we can make the land that we've already got in production more productive. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes, by a combination of uh, uh, alleviating thermal stress and um, by also retaining water for longer. So these two mechanisms combined uh, are expected based on uh, uh, literature that exists to have a okay. Well, look, I mean, if, if that's the case, if what you're saying is correct, then surely you don't have to bring, you don't have to invoke the climate argument um, to make this process work. There will be areas of the world where there'll be a, a productivity benefit from installing these mirrors. And so you can get, you can, you can just sell them as a local agricultural intervention, like a fertilizer without you know very much restriction or global analysis at all because people will have a benefit from just installing them and using them as part of their normal agricultural practices right uh, that is correct and that's a ma major strength of uh, mirror reflection in that it can be tested on local scale primarily first as a adaptation measure which uh, if successful on local scale and providing benefit uh, overwhelmingly over unexpected consequences then hopefully it might be allowed to scale wider to have the intended global cooling benefits. Can you not achieve a similar result by, you know, building things like uh, ports cochere for pedestrians to walk under and roof shingles and carports and all of these different features of the urban landscape that people quite like, but with the benefit of having um, uh, a, a global sort of spillover side effect, is that not an obvious um, way of uh, monetizing your development process? Uh, it is in fact a, a way forward and we are in the process of uh, uh, thinking about designing and testing uh, roof, roofing material that are essentially glass mirrors, but of course designed to the same specification for longevity when deployed as a roofing material. 
And uh, we're hoping to work actually with Peter Dines um, on some uh, NGO projects and also humanitarian project uh, for heat alleviation in countries like India and South America that are currently suffering from these um, extreme heat events, especially in urban areas. Okay. Um, and, you know, there's obviously going to be some kind of learning curve with your product. Have you got any idea of how much your costs will come down and will these small scale applications like urban shading and agricultural productivity improvements, will they make enough difference to what you're doing to make it sensible for um, you to build a business model based on these uh, niche use cases before scaling up uh, to build these uh, cheaper, one would imagine, products out and, and, and cover the whole world with them? What potential do you have for learning by doing? There will be like a lot of learning to be done in um, optimizing existing processes and uh, to see where is it possible to decrease cost. Um, but we certainly think that eventually to go to the global level, governments and uh, larger organizations than individual nonprofits like us or even uh, companies that spin off from our efforts would be needed in order to really make the production uh, a um, endeavor for the uh, public good and uh, where like making a profit is no longer the primary uh, raison d'etre for such organizations. No, I, I get it, I understand, but at the end of the day, you, you have to assume that you're going to be dependent on some kind of business model to make this work, even if it's just competing against other comparable um, global public goods. I mean, people that make lighthouses don't make them for free just because they're a public good, right? They have to exist in an economic environment. So what I was wondering is, have you done any experience curve analysis on this to try and work out how much your costs are going to fall as you scale? Because this is quite predictable. If you look, for example, at Moore's law, um, you know, and Moore's law is interpreted in different ways and it holds better in some interpretations than, than others. You know, Moore's law was originally about the number of transistors on the chip, but that doesn't necessarily um, uh, correlate directly with the processing power. But Moore's law is shown as a, uh, an exponential increase in um, the amount of computing power available, which is held, you know, to some extent for a very long time, multiple decades, right? So have you done a similar analysis to work out how much your costs might fall as you scale production of these devices up and, uh, uh, and, and have them made at a climatically significant scale? We haven't done a very uh, in-depth analysis of uh, to pin down really how much the price can be, except for uh, like from other fields and papers we've uh, looked at. Uh, if say you scale the production by say a factor of thousands, then price may come down by a factor of uh, say ten. And uh, if that's the case, if that could uh, you know be applied to our system, then certainly at the global scale, uh, the co overall cost would be uh, under. Uh, order. Yeah, I, I, I understand that. But what I'm saying is that you can't assume that you're going to get those cost reductions because they only apply to the unique parts of your process. And if things like glass manufacturer and aluminium manufacturer are, are, are what your product is based on, then the novel steps, I mean, we do produce quite a lot of mirrors, right, as a planet. So you're not going to, certainly at small scale, you're not going to be materially increasing the global supply of mirrors. And therefore, you won't see big scale reductions. And we've also had many years of, um, of cost reductions in uh, glass manufacture. Um, and there is a time element as well as a scale element to cost reductions because technologies and techniques can be adapted for other industries to drive down the cost, even with an industry that's not itself scaling, right? So a lot of stuff gets cheaper, even, if the, even though we don't produce enormously more of it than we used to right so um uh, all, all i'm saying is i think that if you, if you haven't done this kind of costing analysis it's an interesting exercise and might show up some um uh limitations or opportunities of the process that you're describing so i'd hope that perhaps future work might be um uh able to shed some light on those questions um, so uh, Yes, I think that that's a, certainly a very interesting um, exercise uh, uh, to perform. So we have basically so far operated with the assumption that cost will pretty much stay the same or comparable to uh, what, uh, how much a glass 
panels are going for these days. And the overall cost is on the order of like 10 trillion US dollar for the whole project. So spread out over say 20, 30 years, it's on the order of a few hundred billion per uh, year of investment. Uh, and certainly given how much money has been printed to cover the COVID crisis, um, if governments were decide, decided to get involved, uh, we don't see it to be a problem from a financial. Yeah, I mean, pr printing money, printing money isn't the same as making money. They're not the same thing, right? So, um, the you know, an inflationary policy which is designed to get the world out of a funk isn't really a good comparator. But I, I, I take your point, but but in, and it might turn out to be substantially cheaper than carbon dioxide removal. I mean, if you're just as a to a rough order of magnitude, I mean carbon dioxide removal is purported to cost around $100 a tonne at scale. It's a lot more than that at the moment, but people imagine it'll cost uh, around $100 a tonne. And you know, maybe some of the rock-based techniques by, might be rather substantially cheaper, but we've got roughly a trillion tons of carbon dioxide to remove, roughly $100 a tonne. You're looking around $100 trillion to remove all that. So your, your product compares pretty favorably to that, but what it doesn't compare to particularly favorably is the um, the release of sulfur aerosols into the stratosphere, which make much more efficient use of materials because they're putting up tiny, tiny amounts of material for every square meter of reflective surface because these are, um, you know, an invisibly small, thin surface. Um, uh, uh, from the uh, cost of the implementation point of view, certainly SAI is probably uh, one of the cheapest uh, if the engineering could be overcome, which uh, is, uh, 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 believable. However, when you are blocking the whole sky, you also decrease the efficiency of renewable energies, especially solar technologies, by a significant fraction. So envision a future where most of the power that we generate are coming from solar technologies. Then even the one, maybe up to 10% decrease in efficiency due to blocking out the whole sky could generate billions of in losses of not uh, uh, you know, efficiency in the energy field. Yeah, that, that's arguably possible, yeah. but it's by no means certain because um, what solar energy, uh, but the, the biggest effect of um, stratospheric sulfur aerosols on, um, uh, on solar panels um, is that they um, scatter the light and therefore they allow individual solar panels to generate, um, they reduce the peak generation capacity, but they, they sort of flatten the curve, as it were, to use a COVID analogy uh, in the... The, uh, the second order effect, the first order effect is uh, a decrease in efficiency between uh, a couple to 10%. Uh, if we were to rely on sulfur, uh, sulfur injection until the end of century. On the other hand, if we went for mirrors, we would have seen an increase in efficiency because the, the skies would become clearer. So I think yeah, I mean you you'd have a cool, you'd have a cooling effect, um, and that that aids solar panels because they don't like being hot. And so what you're saying is by separating out your solar panel area from your cooling area, you end up in a situation where you have a um, uh, a, a net a relative net benefit compared to a, an SAI world where all of the sunlight and all of the sky is attenuated in terms of the downwelling radiation right so um you, you you don't have that kind of sort of roughly kind of single figure percent cost reduction i'm not no, it's actually uh, another factor i like to mention since we're on the topic of renewable energies so we're uh, at some reflection we also have teams working on combinations of mirrors and um, uh, photovoltaics to make much much more efficient uh, ways to capture energy using less um, uh, area of the solar panels to generate the same overall energy for residential use. So uh, there, it's not just about uh, atmospheric physics, but there's also on the ground local engineering that are enabled by the mirror production infrastructure that would uh, greatly accelerate our transition to renewables. So are you talking about mounting on the same racks and things like that? Or what, what, where, where is the effect coming from? Uh, so uh, basically it's a different uh, variants of uh, concentrating solar energy uh, that you can envision using uh, uh, glass arrays, uh, glass mirror arrays. Okay, and so your mirrors are going to, uh, are you saying that your mirrors would be directly used for concentrating solar power or are you saying that the, there'll be economies of scale which would facilitate that? Uh, both. 
So uh, mirror, they can be, they're just components, right? They can be used in modular fashion to provide either active energy capture or passive cooling, which is sort of uh, virtual energy capture. So uh, there are multiple uses uh, at uh, uh, different local scales and also utility scales. Yeah, but how do, I'm trying to understand if you, I mean, if you're trying to re reflect light and by your own figures, you said you're re reflecting somewhere around, I think it was 80 to 90% of the light, then how does that combine? Could you just, just go through, you know, detail to me how you're going to integrate this with the solar panels, with the solar energy system that's going to give you some kind of energy benefit from the, um, uh, from installing these mirrors. I don't see where the benefits directly for solar power are. I can understand how it might do less damage to solar power than stratospheric aerosols um, do, and therefore there's an economic benefit from that. But I don't really understand how there's a direct effect. Yeah. Well, I, I think given uh, uh, you know, you're very versed in uh, the economics of the whole system, how things work commercially, uh, so we are also, you know, forced to play in the same uh, playing field, even though we just want to, you know, do this uh, on a non-profit process. But of course, that's not how the world works. So unfortunately, details of the designs of the systems are uh, confidential at the moment because we are uh, envisioning uh, this part of the, the mirror reflection project to potentially be a, a source of rev revenue to enable us to continue the work on uh, providing cooling mirrors for uh, uh, heat-stricken communities. So. Uh, unfortunately, we cannot really uh, reveal further uh, technical details on how it's possible to drastically reduce uh, reliance on silicon-based uh, photovoltaics. Okay, so all right. So, reading between the lines here, what you're saying is that by using your mirror manufacturing techniques, you're then able to apply some kind of thin film solar panel to the, the mirror sandwich, and you are then making solar panels a lot more cheaply and efficiently than um, can be done with a, an amorphous silicon wafer or a crystalline silicon wafer, which are the dominant technologies that we have at the moment for a solar panel. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah there's uh, many, many variants on how uh, we can um, decrease reliance on, on silicon photovoltaics, which when scaled up would be a real problem for uh, waste management. So we're uh, looking to prevent uh, the future problem that's arising from you know, okay, so you're basically unlocking some IP that might be then useful for the solar, uh, conventional solar industry. I mean, I, I, that's interesting. I think, are you able to give me any kind of costing as to the uh, savings from uh, to the solar industry from the direct effects that you're talking about? So like converting from SAI, which has arguably a harmful effect on the solar industry, um, by, by, by whitening the sky. Um, obviously, we're going to be spending many billions of dollars building out a solar industry. Have you got um, an idea of the cost? Um, so, um, as you know, like the solar um, uh, engineer and our colleagues in that field struggle to get even single digit or a fraction of a percent increase in efficiency. So our uh, approach can basically double or triple the efficiency of energy capture. Uh, oh, no, no, sorry, what, what I was, I think you perhaps are answering a different question to the one that yeah. I was asking. What I'm saying is just, just looking at the sky whitening effect on its own, right? So yes. the, you, you, you've mentioned something to me there, which is completely new to me and no one has ever expressed it in this way. And what you're basically saying is that the sky whitening has a material cost on the solar industry, which is potentially larger than the difference between one geoengineering technique and another. And no one has ever told me that before. And it's a very important point. Uh, and it's a very smart piece of reasoning and it needs to be more widely publicized because um, it, the costs of solar geoengineering are normally considered only to be the deployment costs and not the externalities. And if you're looking at an increase in costs for solar farms, as a result of having to install 1% or 2% or whatever more panels because of the decreasing uh, efficiency in a whiter sky world, then your mere technique could be um, uh, a, a substantial advantage uh, from on a cost basis, not in terms of providing cooling cheaper, but providing cooling in a way that doesn't cause the harms that solar geoeng stratospheric sulfur geoengineering does. Um, uh, by dint of its sky whitening effect and resulting 
um, attenuation of uh, solar power outputs. Um, did you choose the name because it's spelled a specific word? So, uh, Andrew, I want to interrupt you. Uh, so, uh, cutting in and out. So the name of your project is MIR. Um, does the word mean anything? And what does the acronym stand for? Uh, the word uh, MIR, M-E-E-R, stands for MIRS, for Earth's Energy Rebalancing. And does the word have a meaning? Uh, the word doesn't really uh, uh, have a meaning other than perhaps it has a connotation in certain languages that uh, means uh, the sea. So what does MIR stand for? MIR stands for, MIR is for Earth's energy rebalancing. Okay. Um, can you give me a bit of background to the project and to your um, academic studies and career and anything else you've done? How did you- um, So I um, started to do science uh, uh, pretty early in high school, uh, being really interested in chemistry. So I uh, took a lot of courses, university courses. There was somebody else who was going to be joining on the call today and who wasn't able to make it. Could you tell me a bit more about them and their background and their involvement in the project? Uh, yes, I see. So um, the project right now is uh, uh, contributed to by a variety of uh, enthusiasts, uh, scientists, and also entrepreneurs and also students and retired uh, professionals from uh, around the world. So the person that uh, helped us to set up this interview is Peter Dines. He, uh, works to promote um, co-ops of various sorts in um, Northern Ireland. And uh, so Peter is the person responsible for this conversation taking place. So um, I think we've had a fairly thorough roundup of your project. Is there anything that um, uh, else that you'd like to cover um, to help us understand it a bit better? Um, I think we have uh, uh, covered uh, it uh, pretty well today. We have uh, gone through the physics, the device engineering, material science, motivation behind uh, choosing glass, and how energy co-generation using enabled glass can catalyze the transition. Uh, we talked a little bit about, about uh, the biophysical benefits to crops, and also um, uh, potentially why it's important to enable individual communities and small communities to uh, be able to manipulate and deploy this technology to uh, bring about uh, social change at the global level once the current uh, uh, political organization will invariably be challenged as uh, stresses on human system uh, get more amplified over the years to come. Okay, and what's the literature basis for this? Have you published nothing, you know, 100 papers? We are still unfortunately in the process of uh, writing academic uh, manuscripts for publication. Uh, we have uh, uh, a couple of uh, op-ed type of paper um, that's already published on various aspects of the, the proposal, but uh, nothing in um, uh, formal academic journals have been released yet, even though we are uh, working on these. Um, at the, uh, obviously, you know, it's, um, uh, the project is uh, mostly volunteer uh, funded and many students have many other uh, uh, commitment. So the rate of publication is uh, rather uh, much lower than what we would have liked. So most of, most of the information have appeared in the form of uh, presentations and interviews so far. Okay, great. Well, thanks very much for coming on and summarizing um, your research and your project and giving us an insight into the um, state um, that it's in at the moment. Um, obviously, as you uh, rightly point out, um, you uh, haven't uh, done as much on the economics as uh, you should or you could have done. Uh, that's a bit of a weak spot. And I think that that's really important and for something which is you're planning on uh, moving to global scale and particularly where there are some fairly obvious um, uh, bits of work that you could do to, to work out what the uh, um, economic impact, both relative and absolute, are of your technique. So um, I hope you can do more on that. Um, and obviously, we can't actually reject what you've done because you haven't done anything yet. It's uh, just an idea that you've talked about. You haven't published anything. So um, 
although it's a rather technical acceptance, um, because I can't reject anything that you haven't done, um, we are for, unfortunately deprived of the opportunity to reject your work today um, in uh, typical reviewer two fashion. I don't know whether that means that we default to an acceptance or we default to a reject, but we've we certainly not had the opportunity to formally chuck you out of the door. Um, but when you've got a proper paper, uh, and you want to come and play with the big boys in proper academia, then come back and we'll uh, we'll throw you out again. Because um, I feel like we haven't had the opportunity to throw you out formally today, but uh, the yes. time will come. Thanks very much for coming on. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.